0: I'm uh, David Lyons, I'm one of the members of staff uh, here at Someos Church. Uh, and it's uh, a great privilege to be able to uh, come and share with you this morning as we continue uh, in our series looking at generosity, what it means to live uh, a generous lifestyle. I uh, should just get it out of the way with at the start as well. For those of you who are eagle-eyed, you will notice I have a new shirt on today. It's not one of my standard four. Uh, already two people have mentioned and asked whether I have a new shirt. The answer is yes, I do. Uh, so we can all enjoy that. And the good news is that it matched beautifully with Wendy and with Al. We've uh, got a, a standard uniform here of St. goes of Czech shirts on the platform. So, uh, so it's good for that. Uh, So uh, as we approach this series uh, on generosity, it's important that we keep in mind uh, what Ollie mentioned last week as he introduced us uh, to this uh, this series, that living a generous lifestyle uh, is not simply going to be a series all about money. This is about uh, how we use our time, how we use our talents, our possessions to display the generosity of God to others. Living a generous lifestyle is about our entire lives. And here, uh, on my position on staff means that I get to hear stories from the congregation of the outrageous generosity that happens within our own church family. I hear about the times when uh, someone's car is broken down and another member of the congregation gives them a car or, or a prayer cells who regularly meet week after week, some for decades to pray for the church, for the world, for people uh, in our congregation who are sick and unwell. I hear stories of people who give money to people in supermarkets, of someone who gave use of their home so a family could go on holiday, someone who gave up a perfectly excellent window seat on a plane in order to swap with someone who probably had the worst seat um, on the plane, just to bless them. I hear about uh, our Christmas gift collection, which is now over 16,000 pounds someone buying somebody a new bike, someone coming to set chairs up for the carol service when their own home had recently just been flooded. There's all stories from within our own congregation, made up many of them just from in the last few weeks. And there's hundreds and hundreds that I could share with you. So Mungo's is an incredibly generous family. And as we hear testimony like this, and as we take time to study the scripture and what God says about generosity, it brings transformation in our own lives as we're both encouraged to live out that generosity uh, that we hear testimony of and we're challenged by it as well. Ollie last week showed us how God has been so generous to us and why he's been generous to us and then what we can do in response to that generosity, which was this cycle that he showed of thanksgiving, leading to praise and where where faith arises and we trust God more and so our, our fear falls and then generosity flows and we have this repeating cycle of generosity. And it's all very good, isn't it, in theory, but the reality of living this out can be quite difficult. It's far easier to complain than to be thankful. It's easier to worry about our finances than to be confident in God's generosity. It's easier to spend money on ourselves, to use the things that we have to do the things that we want to do, to use our time to do only the things that we want to do, to pray for things that are happening in our own lives rather than seeking to pray for others around us. We often want to be generous and so our intention is to do so and yet we can fall into holding on to what we have or or trying to solve things in our own strength and our own wisdom. I know that I can often relate to what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. Why is this? Well, to find out, we need to head back to the beginning of the scriptures, to Genesis. So in the ancient world, the kings and the rulers, they'd use their authority to order people around them, to have things made, to to decree laws, uh, and to define how society operated. They also got to define what was good and what was evil. And they'd make statues and images of themselves to be worshiped. And the Hebrew word for that is selim. It means idol or image. The Israelites, however, did not see their kings, so Saul and David, etc., uh, as gods. They saw them as rulers, as kings, as leaders. The Israelites saw God as God, and they were not permitted to make images of him to worship. We're talking here, though, about the Israelites, and so, of course, they had to have a go. Uh, but it always went horribly, horribly wrong. To not make an image of God was really unusual in that culture in that time. And one of the main reasons that the Israelites were not to make an image of God was that he'd already made an image for himself. In Genesis, we read how the formation of the world, God is the one with authority. God is the creator. And importantly for what we're thinking about today, he's the one who defines what is good and what is evil. And at the end of each day, we read about God looked at what he'd made and declared it was good. And at the pinnacle of his creation... He made humanity and he calls them the image of God and he gives humanity the authority to rule. Genesis 1:28 to 31 says this. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with a seed in it. They'll be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. God created humanity in his image. And then he did something completely radical because God gave humanity, made in his image, the authority to rule and subdue the earth. Meaning the task which was in the ancient times reserved only to the responsibility of privileged kings is actually the responsibility of every human. The picture given to us in Genesis of how humanity accomplishes this, how humanity rules, is gardening. I come from a long line in both sides of my family of exceptional gardeners. My grandma on my mum's side, who's probably watching this morning uh, online, is probably, I think, the best of the bunch, with a particular specialty uh, growing tomatoes and clematis. Grandma can produce more tomatoes on a single plant plant, then most people could probably grow on about five. Uh, And I've never seen clematis so stunning and beautiful with so many flowers uh, that my grandma can grow. I really wanted to get a photo to be able to show you this uh, this morning. So I sort of scoured back through all my archives. I got mum to get all the external hard drives out at home. And she spent time looking through, but sadly to no avail. So it's one of those images that we have, which will be permanently in residence in my own mind. Uh, Never ceasing to make me smile when I think about it, but sadly I can't share it with you this morning. But this doesn't happen by accident or by luck. It comes through my grandma taking time to care, to cultivate the best conditions for that plant to thrive. To tend dutifully to the plants as they develop, to care for them, to look after them with deliberate and delicate tenderness in order that they might bear abundant fruit and flowers. This image of us being gardeners is God's plan of how humanity is to rule the earth. To tend, to nurture, to care, to cultivate, to make something new and more. The image of gardening extends to growing families, to growing neighborhoods and communities. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says that gardening is humanity's divine and sacred task. And we know from the world around us today that humanity has some incredible and amazing things that it's done, which have helped people and helped society and individuals to flourish and to grow. And we also know, don't we, that humanity has created things which bring about destruction and pain and suffering. So what went wrong? Well, it's the most famous story in the Bible, one of them, but we'll recap it because it gives us the foundation as to why things are as they are. After God had created humanity and declared that it was very good, he gives humanity a choice. A choice about whether they'll rule in a way which benefits others, using God's definition of good and evil. Or if they're going to decide for themselves what is good and evil and use the authority which they've been given to prosper themselves. And it decides to define good and evil for itself. And it sets in motion the pattern for the world that we see uh, in through the centuries, uh, down through the generations, around the world today, and in our own lives. It means that there are times when we can do incredible, wonderful, amazing things which benefit others around the world. But there are equally times when we do things which, despite maybe our good intentions at the outset, bring about evil and destruction and cause pain. And the word that the Bible used to talk about this is sin, and it affects every single one of us. Since the very beginning, humanity decided they would use the authority that's been given by God to decide good and evil for itself. Paul writes about this in Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So since the creation of the world, God's generosity has been on display and it's ultimately been revealed in the person of Jesus. And yet rather than thank and praise God, humanity exchanges God for images of God, for idols that we've made. Think back to the kings of the ancient world, how the kings made images and idols of themselves to be worshipped. Today's idols have changed their appearance. They're no longer statues made of wood and precious metals, but are maybe leaders of nations. They're tech inventors, they're sports stars, their teams, their political ideologies, their scientific theories, it's music, artists. It's, the list is long. Tim Keller says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. They are not feel significant and secure. Modern culture, particularly in the West, will often look back and laugh at ancient idol worship practices. But the truth is they're still in the business of exchanging the glory of the immortal God for man-made idols. They just look a bit different. When humanity creates its own idols, everyone then gets to decide what is good and what is evil for themselves based on on their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions, their own logic, and their own wisdom. And when this is the case, it becomes very easy to deceive ourselves, particularly when our own interests are involved. A wise and very eloquent friend of mine wrote recently, If we, as humans, have taken it upon ourselves to decide what is right and wrong, then which of us gets the final say on what is and isn't over the line? In his letter to Ephesians, Paul outlines the problem facing humanity in a little bit more detail before giving us the good news about what God has done of it. Richard Cokin sums up what we're about to read like this: He says we've been brought from death by nature to life by grace. So let's turn and read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 together. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time. ...gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul lays it out bluntly for us. We're spiritually dead. Not only that, but we're held captive in death by the way of the world. The external cultural environment in which we live. By the influence of Satan, the whispering deceiver. And the wickedness of our nature. The internal compulsive desire for self. The suggestion being that that even if we're somehow able to come alive spiritually, we couldn't free ourselves because we're still held prisoner by these things. We are completely and utterly helpless. But God. Our salvation, the hope that we have, is and always will be because of God. He was not obligated to save us. He was not obliged to save us. And yet he did it anyway. God has shown his extravagant generosity to us. Paul says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, that even when we are dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Jesus Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. God's been generous in his love to us. He's withheld nothing from us, not even his precious son. God's been generous in his mercy to us. He's withheld the punishment that we deserved, enduring it himself through Jesus' death On the cross, God's been generous to us and extended grace when we deserved His wrath. We've been saved so that God might pour out His grace and His kindness, the incomparable riches of those things, to us. God was not content with just saving us, He wanted to pour out more of His grace and more of His kindness upon us. Not one of us can boast in anything that we have or that we've accomplished. Because without God, we'd still be dead and held captive. It's my assumption that most of us here this morning, we know this incredible truth. We know we've been saved by grace through faith. We've experienced and we know the kindness and the generosity of God in our lives, yet we still have moments Where our lives don't always reflect the generosity of God to the world. We have these moments where we make decisions which are self-orientated. Where we raise ourselves up above others. Why? Well, if we use the analogy that we've been held captive or imprisoned by, by culture, by Satan, by our nature. Then why we still struggle is obvious. God has broken us out of jail. And we're wanted back. There's a bounty on our heads. And that will be that way until Christ comes again. As we think about this theme of generosity. One of these three things stands out above all others to me. Our sinful nature. The way in which we look to ourselves. To further ourselves rather than others. Many of the commentators that I read this week refer to this as greed. Jesus talks about mammon, which is our wealth, our money, our possessions, our, our stuff. And he talks about that more than he did about anything else. More than love, more than sex, more than prayer. It's, second, it's his second favorite teaching topic, second only to the kingdom of God. So whilst it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it, If we want to live our lives in a a way which honours Jesus' teaching, we've got to talk about how we use the things that we have, how we use our time. Not to condemn ourselves, but to talk about it. To talk about why it's important and also why it's hard. And to encourage one another in our lives of generosity. Since the moment humanity chose it was going to define good and evil for itself, the universal human instinct is to take the good gifts that we receive from God And reserve them for ourselves. This greed is a corruption of good human desire. And it can be so much part of our lives that we may not realize it. Rebecca de dejong in her outstanding but really challenging book called Glittering Vices. And I do strongly recommend that as a book to, to read through. Says this. She says, only a lack of power restrains our desire to take more than our share. We can't see why we would need more than minor lifestyle adjustments, scaling back our gregarious excesses to address this vice. Our greed has become both mundane and comfortable. It's a matter of the heart. Theologian Dan Wu says what you have is this beautiful relationship of love and faithfulness between God and us and us and each other. It just rebounds and grows and it fills the world. Greed shortcuts this process. Instead of receiving and then reflecting and returning God's gifts, we receive them but we try to terminate the process on ourselves. Greed like many other things which place people, stuff, possessions, etc. above God are a symptom of a self-reliant, self-serving and appreciating heart. It's a symptom of what Martin Luther calls the inward curve of the heart. It takes the human desire for good things and turns it back on itself, which is the exact opposite of what we've been created to do which is to love God and to love others. One of Jesus' most famous teachings on this is found in Mark chapter 10. It's his encounter with the rich young ruler. Who, he says, God, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know my commands? And he says, yes, I've been keeping them since I was young. And Jesus says to the man, go, sell all that you have and come follow me. And the man walks away, feeling dejected. See, Jesus is reordering the man's priorities. He was living a good life. He was following the commandments. Living a godly life. His friends, his family, the neighborhood, people around him would almost certainly have seen the way that he lived. And said, wow, this is a godly man. And yet Jesus sees his heart. And he sees that at a heart level there's an issue. His motivation for following the commandments was all out of alignment. Greed was so much part of his life he hadn't realized. And so Jesus then tried to reorder his deepest loves. He challenged the man to reorder his priorities. And he walked away feeling dejected and downcast. I often wonder if Jesus was stood before me. And he saw my heart, would he suggest some reordering and some reprioritizing? Quite possibly. I know there are certainly moments when I feel similar to Greek philosopher Aristotle. Actually, this is probably the only time I feel similar <laughs> to Greek philosopher Aristotle. When he says this, he says, Now I had discovered the great pearl. To buy it, I had to sell all that I had. I hesitated. I'm not stood here uh, confessing that I always feel like this. I'm just being honest that there's sometimes when I hesitate to hand it all over to God. I try to fix things on my own and through my own wisdom, my own strength, my own resources. There are times when I know that I need to give something away. I hesitate and just hold on just for a little bit. I had a moment like this earlier this week, actually. I was, I was praying for what we should give as a family to our Christmas gift collection. I said, surely I've misheard you, Lord. I'll sleep on it. Funnily enough, I woke up and it was the same. When asked to give something up to follow Jesus, the man hesitated and then he walked away. Jesus, an access to the kingdom of heaven, stands before us. The great pearl. Do we do the same? Or do we fall on our knees? Do we surrender ourselves once more to the one who gave up everything? The one who held nothing back? In his generosity to us, we're all going to have moments of hesitation. It's how we decide to respond after that, which is key. What God has done through Jesus is astonishing. It's a gift that's given so, it's so lavish, it's so generous. It's so unmerited. It's so undeserved. It can't be described as simply being generous. Instead, we have to call it grace. And it's God's greatest gift to us. And when we accept it, we're transformed. We're brought back to life. We're reborn into a relationship with God. No longer the subject of His wrath, but instead we're welcomed as beloved sons and co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Not only that, but we're set free. We're released from the wrenches of this world, the bindings of Beelzebub, the grip of greed, the clutches of control, and the fastenings of fear. We're liberated to live with an open hand, to hold lightly onto what we have, offering everything to God to use for his kingdom and for his glory. For it's all come from him anyway. Jesus, he belonged in heaven. Seated on the throne, encircled by angels, worshipping, declaring his praises. And yet, for your sake and for mine, he ends up stripped naked, tied, nailed to a cross. Despised and ridiculed, mocked. He did this out of his great love for us. And if we choose to accept this outrageous gift of grace, then it changes everything. It's a spiritual rebirth which happens. We're no longer dead, but made alive in Christ. Our relationship with God is restored back to how it was in the beginning. Where through Jesus we have this authority to rule in partnership with God in his creation. To get back to our divine and sacred task of tending, nurturing, caring, cultivating, growing this world so that it reflects the glory of God. As we're filled with his Holy Spirit, he continues to need the truth of the gospel deep into our hearts, which in turn leads to transformation of our hearts. They no longer turn in on themselves, but turn outwards towards others. Perhaps you've heard this good news many times before. And this morning, you're being brought back to a place of wonder. i would be saying, let there be wonder. Brought back to a place of thanksgiving and praise for what God has done. What he's freed us from, what he's rescued us from. Because of his great love for us. Because of his great mercy and his kindness. Or perhaps this morning, this is the first time that you've heard this good news. That God loves you so much that whilst you were still far away from him, maybe even anti him, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross, taking upon himself the punishment which you deserved, and in doing so provided a way in which you could be set free to receive eternal hope, eternal life, and be restored once more into this relationship with the Father. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, God loves you. And he's shown it to you already by his extravagant kindness and his extravagant grace in sending Jesus. It's a gift which is only to be received. And if that's you this morning, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online, there's an opportunity to pray, to ask Jesus to be Lord in your life. So prayer is going to come up on the screen. And if you want to make a decision this morning to ask Jesus to come and be the Lord of your life, to say sorry for the things that you've done wrong, to thank him for dying on a cross for you, and to ask his Holy Spirit to come and live within you in order that you might live an overwhelmingly generous life. I invite you to pray this through with me now. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything I know is wrong. Thank you, you died on a cross for me so that I could be set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your Spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit and be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you've prayed that this morning for the first time, then I want to invite you when we go back into worship shortly. I'd love you to come to the front so we can pray with you, so we can talk to you about what the next steps might be. We've got an Alpha course which is starting on Thursday, the 26th of January, here in Belerno at the Ministry Centre. And that'll be a great next step for anybody who's looking to explore the Christian faith and explore that outrageous generosity, that outrageous gift of grace. We were spiritually dead, bound in captivity, and God, moved by compassion and love and kindness, has rescued us. Our response to God's generosity and his grace It is to live lives of thankfulness and praise and open handed generosity to others. Tony Payne puts it like this The generous grace of God liberates us to be different people, people of lavish generosity. Let's pray. God, your generosity, your mercy, and your kindness towards us is astonishing. It's so lavish, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it. We thank you for sending your son to pay the cost of our sin. We thank you that in rescuing us, you didn't hold anything back, even whilst we were far off. No hope or no entitlement of rescue. You came. We thank you that you didn't give us what we deserved. But instead you generously gave us grace. And we praise you for your goodness and your kindness. Would you send your Holy Spirit to come and show us once more the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness towards us in order that we might be transformed to live lives of generosity to those around us. Would you come this morning, would you release the shackles which seek to keep us bound to this world and keep our hearts turned inwards? Would you come and let our hearts be moved towards others, to see others in the way that you see them? We give you all glory and all praise and all thankfulness.